Lord willing, next week will be John. We'll talk about it during the week, Dawson. The gospel according to Luke. That's where we'll be this morning. Did you see this week that Time Magazine came out with their person of the year? They did, as I'm sure you were bit bated breath. You were just waiting for them to tell us who that person should be. And I think every time I see it, they always come out with like the second most important person of the year. They never quite get the first one. And this year was Elon Musk. And yeah, I, I know his, his cars are dominating the industry and I know he's sent multiple people into space this year and he somehow figures out some way to put his name on the newspaper on the front page or somewhere within it every single day. I know he's influential, but I still think he's probably like the second most important person of this year. In fact, every year they miss it. They miss it. I mean, how are you going to replace somebody who is in control of everything? All of the events that have happened throughout this year happen at the hand of the wisdom of a sovereign God and the person of Jesus Christ. But they got to come up with somebody and they don't want to put Jesus on there every, every single year. But he dominates the whole of human history. He, he even defines time, doesn't he? He controls the natural world, the political world, the religious world, all the cultural trends. He's always at the center of everything that happens. He is the central figure of all of human history. As we're living it out in the past, now, the present, he is the central figure. That's why we're looking into the gospel accounts in this Christmas season. This is a Christmas season and Christmas means the entirety of the world is being governed again by the central person, Jesus Christ. He's even defining their celebrations. So we're coming back again to look at the life of Christ as revealed in these gospel accounts, these accounts of his earthly life and what they tell us about him and who he is and how it is that we should respond to this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really a challenging time for me studying this because every time I, I dig into one of these gospels, it just makes me want to spend a couple of years explaining it to you. And I've got one week, I told someone I didn't eat breakfast this morning, so maybe I'd be hungry and quit at some point before noon or around noon. But we're going to dive into this wonderful gospel, the gospel according to Luke, the third gospel in our Bibles. But before we get into the details of that, let's, let's ask and answer a couple of questions like we did last week when we looked into the gospel of Mark. Who in the world is Luke? Who is Luke? Now you might know a little bit more about Luke than you do about Mark. Mark seems to be one of those figures that people pass over. Luke is someone we feel like we, we know a lot about. But when you read the mentions throughout the New Testament of the person of Mark, you generally run into the person of Luke also. These two men seem to find their place together in the Bible. In fact, we read of him by name in one of Paul's prison epistles in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14. And there it says, Luke... The beloved physician sends you his greetings and also Demas, Luke 4.14. That's where we learn that Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. He is the beloved physician. And no doubt Paul, who had a number of physical ailments, loved having a doctor travel with him. I mean, wouldn't you love that? Just in case something goes wrong, you've got a physician with you. That's how Luke was. 
We don't know anything about his conversion. We don't know anything about how he became a Christian and how this very well-educated individual embraced the gospel of Christ and left all of that to go with the apostle Paul all across the known world and plant churches. I would love some insight into that, wouldn't you? How did this man come to know Christ? I don't know. But I know that he's with Paul and he's virtually abandoned all of his his own pursuits so that he could pursue planting churches and seeing the gospel spread. Him being a physician may tell us why the gospel of Luke is somewhat complicated in the Greek New Testament. He writes in a form of Greek, the Koine Greek, that's quite complicated, quite educated. In fact, this year, it's been my discipline to try to read through all of the gospel accounts in the Greek New Testament and I really, really struggled with Luke. That John, I'm just blowing through. But Luke is really challenging, very complex language. And as a physician, he does make some interesting notes. Sometimes he uses some medical terms like the person with dropsy in chapter 14, verse 2, or the woman bent double in chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. I found it interesting that Mark, in his account in chapter 5, verse 26, mentions a woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. And you remember what Mark said about this woman? She endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. When Luke mentions this woman in chapter 8, verse 43, he mentions none of that. (laughs) I wonder why. He says nothing about those poor physicians. In Philemon, verse 24, we read of him again, and along with who we mentioned last week, Mark, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Just that term, my fellow workers, as we pointed out last Lord's Day, that's a term that refers to those who are officially with the Apostle Paul and going about with him, helping to start churches and strengthen churches throughout the known world. How fascinating that Mark, who later after time with Paul and when he was with Peter, wrote the second gospel, is also mentioned here with Luke, who's a writer of a gospel, and included here as a fellow worker. This tells me that this man was one of Paul's closest friends, closest of companions. Paul didn't let a lot of people into the inner circle. And we already know, we we saw this with Mark, if you abandon the Apostle Paul, you might not travel with him again, at least for some time, until there's some repentance. So for someone to be named in this list, this is a person who's very, very well-known, very close, very loyal, trusted as a friend and a worker for the gospel's sake. I think of that as well, because at the end of Paul's life, Luke is mentioned again, I love the book of 2 Timothy because it's such a rich insight into the Apostle Paul's life at the very end of his life. It's the last letter that we have that we know of that Paul ever wrote. It's right at the end of his life and he expects to die. He expects to be martyred. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, he says, he mentions, only Luke is with me. In the beginning of 2 Timothy, he said, everyone in Asia Minor, that is in the western part of Turkey, and all the churches that he started there, like Ephesus, the church in Ephesus and Colossae and others, all of those Christians had deserted him. No one was with him. Only Luke. 
That tells you something very unique about this man, doesn't it? That says something rich about his his loyalty, his devotion, not just to the Apostle Paul and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but to the gospel itself. For him to be with Paul when Paul was about to be executed means that he was putting his entire life on the line, risking himself to align himself with a man who's going to be executed for preaching the gospel. That's Luke. Slavishly devoted to Paul and the work of preaching the gospel. We learn a little bit more from him because it's not just the gospel of Luke that he has written. He also wrote another book in the New Testament, the book of Acts. How do we know that? Well, look at Luke chapter one, verse three. You saw it. Might not have known much about what it's referring to and who it's referring to, but you see in verse three, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Now we don't have anything like this in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, or John of some kind of introduction, and none of them are named as written to a specific individual unlike this one. Which is really interesting because if you turn over to the book of Acts and look at Acts chapter 1, you find something very fascinating. Verse 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, there's that name, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now I just want you to Pay attention to that phrase, do and teach, because that's what Luke is saying is the content of his gospel, the previous account. It's all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Every phrase in verse 2 is reminiscent of the gospel of Luke and the emphases within the gospel of Luke written to the same individual, Theophilus. Luke doesn't name himself, but he does mention this individual, Theophilus. What is more, in the book of Acts, it contains some very interesting information about the author. You'll read along in the book of Acts, and most people say the book of Acts is the history of the early church. If you want a historical account how the church began, you read the book of Acts. Well, within the book of Acts, it's very fascinating that the author moves from talking about history in the third person, he did that, they did that, to the first person, we did this, we did that. It happened to us as if the author is with the apostle Paul and traveling. Now, what's even more fascinating, if you look up all of those accounts where that first person is used... In the book of Acts, in chapter 16, chapter 20, and chapter 27, many of the ministry partners of the Apostle Paul are mentioned. And if you list all those names, the author mentions many of the fellow workers of the Apostle Paul. There are only two names of all of the workers we know of that are not mentioned. Luke and Titus. So, if you have a book written to the same person as the gospel was written to. And you have someone who across church history has been named as the author of this gospel. 
and he's a first-hand traveler with the Apostle Paul, named by Paul as one of his right-hand men, it's very obvious who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's like volume one and volume two. Volume one, all that Jesus began to do and teach until he ascended to heaven. Volume two, the history of the church and the works of the Spirit in birthing the church and spreading it across the known world. That's Luke. This man knows a lot about the life of Jesus and the work of the church. Now, we don't know much about who this recipient is, Theophilus. He was likely someone of at least high social position because he's called in Luke's gospel most excellent Theophilus, a term that's only used to describe the governor Felix and Festus. So we don't know if he held any kind of political office, but he was obvious someone who had at least high social standing who could use that, that term could be used about him. We don't even know if he was a Christian. We don't know if this was written so that he would be encouraged in the faith or if he, or so that he might be converted. We're not sure. Nonetheless, Luke has written the most thorough record that we actually possess of the life and teachings of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in the life of the early church. Now again, before we look at some of the details, let me, let me just mention a few unique elements to Luke's gospel. And you might know some of this, but I, I just want you to get your, your mind around it. Luke's gospel is long. It's really long. Don't look at your watch right now. It will not help you for this morning. Luke is a long gospel. It's the longest of all the Gospels. In fact, it's the longest book that we have in the New Testament. As one Lucan scholar, Daryl Bach, has noted, the Gospel of Luke is the longest Gospel. In the Greek New Testament, Matthew occupies 87 pages, Mark 60 pages, and John 73 pages, while Luke takes up 96 pages. A comparison of verses reveals a similar count. Matthew has 1,071 verses. Mark has 678. John has 869. While Luke contains 1,151 verses. And we're going to read them all this morning. No, really, we won't read all of them. We'll talk about them all. If you take Luke's gospel and you put it together with the the book of Acts, which again is a very lengthy book, it's second in length only to the book of Luke, then that means that Luke ends up writing about 28% of the entire New Testament. That's really fascinating and significant. This gospel contains significant material that none of the other gospel accounts contain, especially in light of some of the parables that are given here and some of the individuals that are emphasized and mentioned. None of the other gospels mention this. It's long, quite unique. Luke is also very precise. He's precise. I mean, he tells us in chapter 1, And in verse 3, he wants to write something in consecutive order, meaning he wants it in an orderly way. And so he's very precise in what he describes. He's historically precise. In chapter 1, verse 5, in chapter 2, verse 1, in chapter 3, verse 1, you're going to get very specific historical references to people in the world at that time so you can locate this story about Christ 
this biography as it were, this gospel revelation in history. He's historically precise. The timing in Luke is really specific. He refers to specific times unlike virtually any other author of a gospel. He tells us Jesus was about 30 years old when beginning his ministry in chapter 3 verse 23. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, chapter 4, verse 2. There was a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, chapter 8, verse 43. Eight days after the sayings on discipleship, he begins a new discourse in chapter 9, verse 28. There was a woman who was bent double for 18 years. It was about the sixth hour that darkness fell until the ninth hour at the cross in chapter 23, verse 44. It was on the first day of the week that the women went to the tomb in chapter 24 and verse 1. You even see some of the precision of his timing in chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, and they're both righteous in the sight of God. Just precision in how he makes reference to these. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God from God. In verse 56 of chapter 1, Mary stayed with her about three months. Verse 59, it happened on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. Why give all these details of timing? I mean, we would pass over them so quickly. But what is Luke wanting to do? He's wanting to show you that these things that he's talking about are actual, real, in time and space. There's precision there. He's also religiously precise. If you were to study in detail Mary's Magnificat in chapter 1, verse 46, down to verse 55, which I believe we did about a year ago, we looked into some of this. If you go back and study that, you will see how biblically rich this is. Almost every phrase coming out of her mouth is tied to something in the Old Testament. The same is true of Zechariah's prophetic response in chapter 1, verse 68 through 79. It's as if Zechariah goes through all of the covenants of the Bible to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the final covenant to come, the new covenant. In chapter 2, Luke will go into painstaking detail to show how Jesus was explicitly following the law of Moses. His genealogy in chapter 3, verse 23 to 28, goes all the way back to Adam so that you can see Jesus and his connection to Adam and the creation. He mentions in chapter 22, verse 1, the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover. Chapter 23, verse 54, it was preparation day, the Sabbath day that was about to begin. All to root this in some kind of religious precision so you could see Jesus is actually fulfilling everything required of someone under the law in Judaism to follow to satisfy the righteousness of God. It's very precise. He's also geographically precise. I found this fascinating. I just traced through all 24 chapters all of the specific locations that are mentioned from beginning to end. In the first four chapters specifically, he is very, he's very clear to mark all of the progressions of Jesus geographically. 
from Judea to Galilee, back to Jerusalem, to Galilee, back to Jerusalem, to Nazareth, to the Judean wilderness, back to Jerusalem, then into Galilee. And from about chapter 5 all the way to chapter 17, when Jesus says he's going to go back to Jerusalem, there's virtually no geographic mention. But when you get to chapter 17, he says, I'm going back to Jerusalem. You'll read of Samaria, Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem, and the temple all the way through to the end. It's fascinating and I think very explicit that Luke begins geographically in the temple in chapter 1 verse 5. And if you see where it ends in chapter 24 verse 53, they are in the temple every day praising God. That's not a mistake. Christ is the very presence of God. The temple was the presence of God. He's making a very explicit connection. He's precise. He's also prayerful. Unlike any other gospel account, Luke emphasizes prayer. In fact, Luke and Acts together is filled with references to prayer. It struck me this week as I was reading through all of the chapters and just marking the sections and inductively studying this book, as I started marking the sections, I started noticing there's something significant about prayer that is said to begin every section of this book. And I'm going to show you that explicitly as we go through. And every section, every major section of this book is headlined by something related significantly to prayer. And that prayer, if you consider it, and what follows, that prayer is related to all of the content that follows. It's really fascinating. Very prayerful. He'll mention prayer not only in the five occasions that we'll look at specifically for the five sections, but also in chapter 3, verse 21, at his baptism, chapter 5, verse 16, chapter 9, verse 18, verse 28, verse 29. They're all key moments that describe the identity of Christ when he mentions prayer. Luke is also very purposeful. Very purposeful. There are significant emphases here on joy which would be a wonderful Bible study for you to do. Just go through the Gospel of Luke and mark all the times that you find some reference to joy or rejoicing. It is astounding. Go back through and read it again and mark all the references to the Holy Spirit and you'll, you'll spend most of the week doing that. He mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other Gospel writer. Mentions prayer, as we've noted. He also talks about people who were outcasts in society, the people that most would believe could not come to God, he emphasizes them as coming to God. The people you would assume should be in God are the people he emphasizes that are likely not in God. It's fascinating in this gospel particularly. Luke also talks about the kingdom of God more than any other writer. Now, Matthew will refer to the kingdom of heaven, but Luke refers to it as the kingdom of God 31 times. 31 times compared to twice in John's gospel, 14 times in Mark's gospel, 31 times in Luke, he talks about the kingdom of God. He gives us some fascinating information about the composition of his gospel. I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 1, just for a moment. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. I want you to think about that for just a moment. 
he notes that there are others around him, contemporaries to him, who are writing down records of all the things going on around them. I would take that to be all the things about the gospel, about the life of Christ and the early church. So Luke is not the only historian in the first century writing about this. There are others. He doesn't mention them. He just says there are others who are doing it. Talking about Christ, talking about the emerging church, those are the things accomplished among us. Just as, verse 2, they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I would surmise then that the people in verse 1 are writing down the account about the things of Christ and the early church, and they're not the same people as the eyewitnesses. No, they've been receiving, as Luke has, they've been receiving information from the eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. The, The word servant, in regard to servants of the word, means officials, the official representatives of the word, those whom God had tasked to actually reveal The New Testament, the eyewitnesses and those who God used to record all of that. They're different than these people that Luke refers to in verse 1 who are writing all these things down. So that would eliminate Matthew. He was an eyewitness and it would eliminate John. He's an eyewitness. Those aren't the people he's referring to in verse 1 that are writing these things down. It probably would eliminate Mark because Mark was an eyewitness of these things through whom, as we learn? Peter. So there are a lot of people writing things down and they're getting it all from the eyewitnesses and the official servants of the word. And then he says, and it seemed fitting for me as well. It seemed like the right thing to do for me. It's almost as if I'm finding some things in these people who are writing all this stuff that's just not quite enough. He doesn't say it's bad. He doesn't say it's wrong. He said, but it's, it seems right for me to come along. And he wants to write an orderly account, which may give us some emphasis as to what was not being presented in the other writings. And he wants to do it, notice in verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth, the precise truth. That's a word that actually could be translated as credible evidence. There's a lot of things that have been written about Jesus. Here's what Luke wants to give you. Something in an orderly way that is completely credible about Christ and the church. That's why he writes this gospel. That tells you the purpose of this book. So that you may know the exact truth. So you may know epignosco. Uh, Gnosko is a word that means to know something in a full way. If you put the prefix onto it, epignosko, you're intensifying it. I want you to know this in the fullest possible way. I think that's why it's so long, it's so precise, it's so stock full of everything he can think of to put in there. I want you to have full, rich, powerful knowledge that is exact, credible I don't want you to believe lies. I want credible evidence. And if we combine this with what we read in the book of Acts chapter 1, remember what I told you a moment ago? He wrote the gospel, the first account, was everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. This is what Luke does. 
He is writing for us an account of the life of Christ that is credible. Everything he does is providing a credible testimony as to who Jesus is. Now, Luke, just like Mark, wants to tell you explicitly who he is and show you all the credible reasons why he is this person. And who does Luke say that he is? Very simply, he is the son of God. The son of God. The angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. When the devil tempted him in the wilderness, you remember the question he kept asking Jesus to prove? If you are who? The Son of God. What's being called into question? His identity as the son of God. Who did Gabriel the angel tell Mary that he would be? The son of God. As we've seen in the gospel of Mark and as we have seen in the gospel of Matthew also at his baptism, the father in chapter 3 verse 21 of Luke, chapter 9 verse 35, the father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Interestingly, you remember last week I I mentioned that Mark in his gospel never records Jesus calling himself the Son of God. Someone else always saying it about him. In Luke's gospel, we have an interesting note in Luke chapter 22, verse 70. When he's being tried in front of the Sanhedrin, they all said, Are you the Son of God? And he said to them, Yes, I am. So put this all together. Luke's burden is to show for certain, to show the credibility of Jesus to be the son of God. And he does that by describing us to us everything that he began to do and teach. That's the purpose and the content of the gospel of Luke. To show us the credibility that Jesus is the son of God through what he began to do and to teach. And that brings us to a conclusion. If he is the son of God, what does that mean for you? In fact, he will actually ask and answer that question for people when they're accusing him of being of the devil. He says, If I do these things by the power of God, if I am the son of God, then the kingdom of God must then be among you. What will you do with that then? Great question for us to answer. If Jesus actually is the son of God, what difference does that make to you? What difference does it make? If the kingdom of God is here and coming, how are you responding to that? So that's what we're going to look at in our remaining time. You say, I don't, I don't know how we can do that. Well, just listen really fast, okay? If you can listen fast, it'll go by fast. There are five parts to this gospel, and I want to show them to you. And all five of these parts are 
statements about his credibility. So Luke's gospel credibly establishes Jesus to be the son of God through five parts of his earthly life. Five parts of his earthly life that show him to be the credible son of God. Again, we, we can't go through everything in detail, and so I'm just going to flood you with, with the content of this book, as it were, just so you can get some taste of it and you can see it. And hopefully it would whet the appetite to say, I want to dig into this even more. Now, as I mentioned, what's so fascinating about these five parts is how they're marked off. All five of them are marked off with a headline of prayer. Some element of prayer. So let's look at the very first part and then we'll see this. First, Jesus is credibly the son of God because of the establishment of Jesus' ministry. The establishment of Jesus' ministry. That's chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 6, verse 11. This is the establishment of Jesus' ministry. If you want to see the foundation of what makes him the son of God, you look into the beginnings of his life, you look at the beginnings of his ministry, and you should see that, and that alone, it should show you this is the son of God. And as I mentioned, it does begin with prayer. You see it in verse 1. There's the mention of a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth and they were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. Now what you need to know about that is that Levites would be essentially randomly chosen to come to the temple and to lead the temple prayers in the morning and in the evening. And it just so happened that Zacharias' name was chosen among these Levites And it was his turn and his time to come and do this perfunctory duty of simply leading the congregation in prayer. There are people who would be, they would assemble outside of the temple area and the priests would go inside to the holy place to the altar of incense and put the incense on the altar which represented the prayers of the saints. Do you know what the people were praying for as they opened the day and closed the day? They were praying for the coming presence of God. The hope of all of Israel is that God would one day come and be back among his people. And morning and evening, the priests would gather the people and he would represent the people in the holy place before God, begging for him to return. This is a prayer for the presence of God to come. And so he did it. It was, verse 9 says, the custom of the priestly office. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. All of that is specific to say they're praying for the coming of the presence of God. Morning and evening, day after day after day, praying for it. And what are the rest of these chapters about? They're answering that prayer, aren't they? They're answering that prayer. Three historical markers mark off each of these sections. It's interesting. 
in the days of Herod, king of Judah. That's one five, two one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Chapter three. Now, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, all three of those. This is the only time you're going to read those kinds of historical markers like this, which sets off really the the really significant sections of this first opening part. His background shows the coming of the presence of God and the establishment of his ministry. That's all of chapter 1. Prophecy given to Zacharias confirms the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. The conception of Jesus confirms his identity as you read about the angel coming to Mary and saying, this is how you will have a child. The conception even proves his identity. The forerunner that is described in chapter 3, after that other, that third historical marker, the forerunner confirms that this is the Son of God. So the prophecy, the conception, the forerunner, all of his background shows that this is credibly the Son of God. His birth in chapter 2 confirms his identity. The way he was born, when he was born, even the shepherds confirm his identity. The angels come and they start making statements about the one who is coming. They're actually quoting scripture out of Ezekiel, referring to the new covenant and saying the new covenant of God has come in the person of Christ. And it comes to these shepherds, people that no one would expect God to come to and reveal this. Even the temple confirms that there's two people within the temple who come and prophetically speak about Christ as the coming son of God. His background shows him to be the son of God. His beginning shows him to be the son of God. Then you start in chapter three, his whole ministry, this goes through chapter six, it confirms him to be the son of God. The forerunner, John, confirms him. His genealogy in chapter three confirms him to be the son of God. Even the temptation of Jesus. Sometimes we read about the temptation of Jesus. We think, ah, he gave us this so we can know how we can overcome our temptations. Well, it's helpful to that, but that's not the reason why you read about the temptation of Christ. You read about the temptation of Christ to see he's sinless. He's the son of God. He overcomes the way God expects the perfect human being to overcome. Independency on the word of God. This is the son of God because he's perfect. When we see him launch his ministry, he goes into the synagogue, the greatest cultural location within all of Judaism in the time of Christ and the entire synagogue. He opens a scroll. The scroll is just happens to be on a particular passage for that day. Jesus stands up and reads it and he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your midst and he sits down. The synagogue confirms this is the son of God. His authority over demons, over sickness, the crowds and how they're gathering, the disciples that he's choosing, the sick, the sinful, even those who are opposing him. That's all the content from chapter three down to chapter six. They're all saying this is the son of God. The whole of his ministry shows us this. The way he establishes himself said this is the son of God. As you're reading through it, Keep asking yourself that question if you read through those first six chapters. Who is this? Who is this? This is the son of God. The establishment of his ministry proves that he's the son of God. There's a second part. In chapter six, verse 12, all the way to chapter 10, verse 42, 
I call it the equipping of Jesus' followers. The equipping of Jesus' followers shows that he is the Son of God. This is essentially the lifestyle of those within God's kingdom. It begins with prayer. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when he came, he called whom? All of his disciples. Now, what does that mean? There weren't just 12 disciples. There were hundreds. And what was a disciple? A disciple was someone who left their livelihood behind to connect themselves to a teacher. And they would virtually memorize everything that that teacher would say and repeat it because they would be representatives of this teacher. There were hundreds of people who had devoted themselves to follow Jesus at this time because of what he was doing. So he gathers them all together. And it says, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of those disciples whom he also named as apostles. Twelve out of the likely hundreds of disciples he names as apostles. When? After he had spent all night in prayer. This is a prayer not for the presence of God, but this is a prayer for the people of God. And what's fascinating from this section, when he chooses the twelve, he begins then to teach them. Now, this is where it's really fascinating if you'll watch it go back and forth. You remember what Acts told us that this account is all about? It's all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Everything in in this section from here through almost the rest of the book, at least up until the cross, is a series of teaching and then actions. Teaching, then actions. What he says and what happens in actions that confirm what he says. It's really fascinating. So what happens after he chooses the apostles? You see it in verse 20. And turning his gaze to the disciples, he began to say, he starts teaching them, doesn't he? He starts to teach them. So let me give you just a few things that he's teaching and how he's equipping the disciples. In chapter 6, verse 20, Down to verse 49, he's teaching them about kingdom life. Kingdom life. There's the Beatitudes and the woes. And by the way, this is on a separate occasion as that which we find in Matthew's gospel. And you say, but it sounds so similar as to what Matthew said in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, yes, what you need to know about Jesus is he didn't just preach this sermon once. He went all around the area of Galilee. He preached the same message essentially over and over and over and over again. That's why people were so familiar with it. So yes, you'll find in different places some different nuances. In Matthew, he goes up onto a mountain and he teaches this. Here, he's in a level place and he begins to teach it. And it's a different occasion. Yet similar, similar teaching. He teaches the Beatitudes. This is what kingdom life is all about. It's essentially the same kind of content that you would find in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is what kingdom life is all about. Then I want you to notice something. That's all the way through verse 49. And you see in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 7, when he had completed all his discourse, so he finishes the sermon, he finishes the teaching. In the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And from here down to verse 17, 
is him doing kingdom life. A centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, he's worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. It was he who built us our synagogue. And Jesus was starting on his way. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. He recognizes the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus. And he even acknowledges that in verse 8. I'm a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And my slave do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and turned and said to the crowd that was following, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Then he goes to a city called Nain and his disciples were along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. And he approached the gate of the city and a dead man was being carried out, only the only son of his mother. And he was a widow and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. So what you see here, he's taught. Now he begins to do and to act. He teaches with messianic authority. This is what kingdom living is about. He begins to display that in the way he lives his life. Overcoming sickness, even death. This is what he began to teach, what he began to do. Kingdom identification, chapter 7, verse 18, down to verse 35. He begins to teach them about what it means to identify with the kingdom. Some of John's disciples are wondering, is this really the expected one? Should we identify with you? And Jesus reminds them, I'm fulfilling the scriptures. Go back and tell John that. In chapter 7, verse 36, you begin to see him doing and acting. In verse 36, one of the Pharisees requested him to dine with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined. And here you see the activity of Jesus. If you go into it, you'll see it's simply a living picture of how to identify with Christ. Chapter 8 is fascinating. Verse 1, he begins to teach them again about kingdom faith. What does it mean to have faith in the kingdom? And so he gives them the parable of the sower, verses 4 down to verse 15. Parable of the lamp in verse 16, 17, 18. What does faith look like? Well, you'll notice it. Some people produce fruit. Other people begin to leave the faith, what's faith look like? It's those who actually stay with it and produce fruit. What's fascinating is beginning in chapter 8, verse 22, he begins to test whether or not those following him have kingdom faith. This is where he begins to do the actions that he has just taught about. On one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. They began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke him. You remember this account. Master, master, we're perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? Now this would strike them because what did he just teach them? What does faith look like? And what do they seem to not have? Faith. 
Then they land in the country of the Gerasenes, Gentile country, opposite Galilee. When he came out to land, he's met by a man from the city possessed with demons. And you remember what happens. This man is possessed by a legion of demons. Jesus casts all of those demons out into a herd of swine. They go over the cliff and die. The man, the report of this man being made well, makes its way into all of the city. And they come out. And what does the city of Gentiles want with Jesus? Nothing. It illustrates again what he was saying in the parable of the soils. Who has faith? Who doesn't have faith? A demon-possessed man gained faith. People who witnessed that don't want anything to do with him. His actions show what he had been teaching. The fourth element of his equipping the disciples is kingdom service, chapter 9, verse 1 through 11. Here he begins to send out the twelve. This is so fascinating because he had just shown them his power and his activity. He had taught them on faith. Now he sends them out. Now you go do it. And what should you expect? You should expect people to respond the way I've just taught you, like the soils show us, like you've seen in yourself. Now you go out and you begin to do this. So in chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 11, he sends them out. But then in verse 12, It's no longer teaching about service, it's showing, doing of kingdom service. In verse 12, all the way down to verse 27. What happens in that account? The 5,000 are fed. So they just get back from doing everything that Jesus said. They're teaching about the gospel, they're healing, they're casting out demons. They come back and they say, this is wonderful. He says, good, go feed the crowds. And they say, what? What? Right. Right. This is part of kingdom service. Now go feed these crowds. And what are they? We we can't feed these thousands of people here. What are you thinking? Well, I just sent you out. And what did you do? Now, now go do this. Again, he's taught them. Now he shows them about kingdom service. Fifth kingdom glory. He teaches about in chapter nine, verse 28 down to verse 36. That's the transfiguration. They see Jesus in his kingdom. This is what he will look like and be like in the coming of the fullness of the kingdom. He's completely transfigured in front of them and they see it. And they behold it. What's interesting is what follows. It's the doing of kingdom glory or the activity of kingdom glory being tested in verse 37 down to verse 62. He comes down from the mountain and all of this begins to be tested. What is true greatness? What's true glory look like? They discuss it in verse 46 down to verse 56. What's true discipleship? True discipleship is having no personal glory. Someone says, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Is that the kind of glory you want? They saw glory on the mountain, but in his earthly life, there's no personal glory for you. You're not going to receive greatness in this life. Kingdom work, chapter 10. He teaches them about the work of the kingdom. Seventy are now sent out, not just the twelve, but the seventy. And he teaches them about what they should expect. It goes down to verse 24. 
kingdom work. Then in verse 25, he begins to live this out and show them this in activity when a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is the work to gain the kingdom? That's what he wants to know. Then Jesus pivots to the good Samaritan to show them what is the work of the kingdom. Well, here's a Levite and here's a, here's religious leaders that come across a Samaritan, a half-breed Jew who they don't want anything to deal with. What's the work of the kingdom? Serve this man. Samaritan saves him. Martha and Mary are serving, verses 38 through 42. What does kingdom service look like? It's not just doing It's worshiping. It's kingdom work. All of it. What's he doing? Equipping, training the disciples. Here's teaching, doing. Teaching, doing. Equipping them. It's the third part of Jesus' earthly ministry that we want to look at that shows him to be the son of God. It's chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through chapter 17, verse 37. This is the exposing of Jesus' enemies. The exposing of Jesus' enemies. I want you to notice how it begins in verse 1. It happened. While Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he teaches them what we commonly refer to as what? The Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer? What is the Lord's Prayer? What is the disciples' prayer? It's a prayer around the priorities of God. What are God's priorities? If you want to find somebody who's in the kingdom, or if you want to expose someone who's not in the kingdom, examine their priorities. Are you around these priorities? What's fascinating is the rest of this section is exposing people with truth, who are not of the truth because of their priorities. So he leads this with prayer about kingdom priorities. And then he begins to expose people who do not share those priorities. There are kingdom responses that are mentioned beginning in chapter 11, verse 14. It's a long section that goes down to chapter 13, verse 9. It's a number of responses that expose who the enemies of the Son of God are. He talks about the source of the kingdom, service in the kingdom, family who belong to the kingdom, signs of the kingdom, light in the kingdom, purity, condemnation, hypocrisy, confession, wealth, confidence, preparation, division, appearance, judgment, fruitfulness. All of these are drawing out priorities in a person's life. Are you of the kingdom? If you look at chapter 13, verse 10. There's a healing on the Sabbath. He teaches all the way up to verse 9. Then he here's an action, a doing of these priorities. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you're freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But... 
The synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in the response, there's six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, one of your own people, and she as she is, whom Satan is bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? What's he exposing? You don't have the principles or the priorities of the kingdom in mind. You've got self-preservation in mind, your own way to live out religion. From chapter 13, verse 18, down to chapter 14, verse 14, you see kingdom influence described Kingdom influence, including who's excluded from the kingdom, who's included in the kingdom. I'll let you read through that section rather than taking all the time. I want to look at a third element of this exposure. It's called kingdom redemption. It's all of chapter 15. This is a beautiful section in Luke's gospel. It's unique to him. It's the lost sheep the lost coin, the lost son. What are those doing? It's showing God's redemption, the father's redemption of what's lost, right? What's lost. But in every one of them, every one of them, he's exposing those who are not of the kingdom, isn't he? In every one of them. Do you value what is lost and found by the father or do you only value yourself, your personal approach to religion or do you accept what most of culture rejects and the father saves what's your response kingdom redemption chapter 16 verse 1 down to chapter 17 verse 37 I call them kingdom activities he teaches on the kingdom kingdom stewardship faithfulness the law in regard to the kingdom, forgiveness, faith, duty in the kingdom, even talks about the coming of the kingdom, all kingdom activities that he teaches them about. All exposing who has these priorities, who does not. They show him to be the son of God. Number four, the fourth part that shows him to be the son of God Begins in chapter 18, verse 1, goes all the way to chapter 22, verse 38. It is the expectation of Jesus' return. Notice how it begins in verse 1 of chapter 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show them, to show that all at all times they ought to do what? Pray. And not to lose heart. And all the way down to verse 8, he teaches them about prayer. And it is a kind of prayer that is a prayer of expectation of the kingdom's coming. It's a prayer for persistence in God. You must be persistent in prayer. That's why this fourth section is so fascinating. It's the expectation of Jesus' return. It shows him to be the son of God, the expectation of his return. What do you do in prayer? Do you expect him to come? Do you pray persistently expecting him to come? Now this section's arranged into three parts. It's really fascinating. It answers three questions. Who can be saved? 
Who's lost and when will he return? Who can be saved? He teaches on that in chapter 18, verse 9. Who can be saved? It's really fascinating. In verse 9, he talks about the Pharisee and the publican, right? The tax collector. Who can be saved? The tax collector who's repentant and humble towards God. Verse 15, chapter 18. They were even bringing their babies to him that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began to rebuke them. Jesus called them and said, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Who can be saved? The humble can be saved. The uninfluential can be saved. Like children, they have no influence. The empty can be saved. See the account of the rich young ruler. Good teacher, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Why do you call me good? And how does that end with this man? Well, he walks away, says in verse 23, because he had become extremely rich. The problem is he didn't want to lose his wealth. Who can be saved? Those who are empty of themselves. They can be saved. The disciples respond in verse 28, we've left our homes and followed you. And he says, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much in this at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. What does that mean? The sacrificial can be saved. Those who will give up everything to follow Christ, they can be saved. There's a demonstration of that, an activity that follows in verse 35. Who, who receives this sight? This man, Bartimaeus, a blind man, begging, whom nobody thinks has any spiritual health at all. He becomes not only physically well, but spiritually well. He can be saved. In chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, it's the story of Zacchaeus. Here's another action. Who can be saved? Would anybody think that a tax collector can be saved? No. Who's saved? Zacchaeus, a repentant man. Who will be lost? Chapter 20, verse 1. They begin to question his authority. They reject his authority. They deny him to be the son of God. They reject his wisdom. They reject his understanding. They reject his lordship. They reject everything about Christ. They even show the rejection of God because they start to plunder those who have no wealth, like the widow who is giving everything they have to the corrupt temple system. He's not saying you need to be like that widow. He's saying, look what they're doing to people like this widow, taking everything she has from her. They will be lost. And then in chapter 21, when will he return? Verse five, he starts into that, talking about the temple. And they say, when is this all gonna happen? So he teaches them. He teaches them about his return all the way down to chapter 22, verse 38. He talks about the coming and the return of Christ. All of it shows him to be the son of God. One last one, then we'll finish. The ending of Jesus' earthly ministry teaches that he is the son of God. Chapter 22, verse 39. Notice how it begins. He came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray 
Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray. And this is the prayer of him in the garden, right? What's he praying for? He's praying for perseverance. Help me not to fail. Don't let me fail. Is there another way? If not your way, he's praying for perseverance. Why would he need that? What's about to unfold up into the cross? Trial after trial after trial, calling his identity into mind, calling his disciples to leave the faith, challenging them whether they stay or whether they'll go. He's praying for them to stay, to persevere. No more teaching sections here. All of this is his trial, his rejection, betrayal, denial, mockery, disinterest, contempt, hatred. Only glimpses of people before the cross, weeping, trying to help him. Most are condemning him, shaming him. Contrasted by one brief moment on the cross when the thief repents. And Jesus dies in chapter 23, verse 44. And what comes from that? A righteous man who will bury him, resurrection, enlightened understanding, the ascension. And how does it end? With all of the disciples in the temple continually praising God in joy. I want you to think about this. The longest account of the life of Jesus that we have with all of its historical, chronological, religious, geographical precision, detailing every credible way that this man fulfills everything in scripture, everything in experience, in his teaching and in his actions, that he is the son of God. In the greatest possible detail, with some of the most complex use of language of his day, Luke says Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the ultimate expression of God and what God wanted all humanity to be. You will not find it in anyone else. If he is the son of God, what does that mean then? What are you doing with him? How are you responding? Do you have his priorities? Do you follow what he teaches? Does your life expose that you do not desire the things of God? Does Christ really dominate you or do you have your own approach to religion? Those questions are over and over brought to us. Contrasting us and where we are with Christ, this is the son of God. How do you relate to him? How do you see him? How do you honor him? How do you worship him? How do you serve don't, don't list your actions as if I'm a Christian because of this, this, and that, and yet they don't match the very real priorities of Christ and humility, killing pride, bowing to his lordship, acknowledging him for who he is. He's clearly the son of God, the full display of all that God is. The kingdom of God then has come. It's come to us in Christ. Fascinating that Luke mentions more about the spirit because the spirit is the presence of God with his people, meaning the kingdom is still here. 
And at the same time, we're waiting for it to come, aren't we? Are you in the kingdom? You are if you see him and respond to him as the son of God. And you should believe that he is. And if you're one of those people that most people would look at and say, I'm I'm not sure if because of your lifestyle and what you've got going on that you could actually be in the kingdom. Luke shows us that all the outcasts can come, right? All of them can come. There will be change. You can't stay as you are, but you can change. God will save you. And if you don't want to change and you want your own religion, your own approach to God, you won't be. You're not in the kingdom of God. Everything you need to know, everything you need to possess to serve him is found in Christ and the gospel message. He is the fullness of God. Let's pray together. Father, how we pray that as we finish up this time of study in your word, we're reminded again how precious Christ is, how powerful he is, how brilliant he is, how glorious he is. Father, we thank you for what you've revealed to us in the person of Christ and what he's done. Help us to respond in the right way, in a way that's in accord with true faith. I pray it would come out in how we live for his glory, that there would be no doubt in our mind. And I pray, Lord, that we would pray as we've been taught to pray throughout this gospel for the coming of your presence, for the people of God who will actually represent you, that we would pray that we would be persistent in following you in such a way that exposes true and false, that we would persevere and we would pray that no one would fail, that we would keep believing and trusting in Christ. Father, help us and use this for your glory now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.